this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. And I think this is a great passage that sort of breaks down where the battle is, who it's between, and what what is our answer towards that. So beginning in verse 16, Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets a desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's pray. Father, there's been so much confusion around this idea of the flesh and the spirit and the fight that's going on. And and so, Father, would you would you give us an understanding this morning? Would you help us to to recognize where the battle really takes place and to to understand how you want to provide that victory from us? And so, Father, if there's been some some faulty concepts here, would you clear those out so we could hear from you directly? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, before we get into this passage and kind of tear it apart, I, I, I want to take a step back and take a look at the context of the passage. And, and I do that because whenever you study the scriptures, the context is the most important thing to get right. Because if you get the context right, everything else will generally fall into place. If you don't get the context right, then you're going to be in trouble. Simple way to kind of look at that is if you ever take a text out of its context, you're left with a con. And that's what often happens with a lot of people. They've, they will say, well, we got this teaching. It's all biblical. And, it, you know, it's biblical. They just, they've t- taken the context out of, or the, the verse out of its context and they can make it say anything they want. So we want to have an understanding here about why, why Paul's even writing this letter to the Galatians. So what happened is Paul had gone through the churches of Galatia and he had planted some churches. But as soon as he had left the region, a group of people called Judaizers came in. Now, these Judaizers, they weren't denying Jesus. They couldn't deny Jesus to these people. These people had already accepted Jesus by faith. They already understood their salvation by faith. What these Judaizers were doing is they were coming through and they were saying things such as, well, Paul was right about Jesus. He was right about salvation. What he didn't tell you was what comes after salvation. And he didn't tell you because he didn't want to offend you. He wanted to water down the gospel. But how it really works is now that we've come to Jesus for salvation, what happens now is you need the law. You now need Moses and you need to follow the rules and the rules will keep you safe. The rules will keep you on track. And that's what you need to follow. So Paul's writing this letter to the churches of Galatia and he, he, it's the most uh, in-your-face letter that Paul wrote. I mean, he, he opens up the letter in chapter one and he says, I can't believe you so quickly left the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't warn them against leaving a teaching or a way of life or a doctrine or anything like that. He says, you have left the person of Jesus Christ so quickly. How could you do that? Don't you understand that, that what he's done is more than just forgiven you? And, and so he goes on to explain in, in chapter 2 and verse 20, this, this incredible verse that at salvation, you and I, we were placed into Jesus Christ. And so because of that, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. What's so important about this is understanding the who died. It wasn't just Jesus died for me. Paul says, I died with him. You and I died with him. Well, who died? It was that sinful self. It was that person you were in Adam. It's that person you used to be before you knew Jesus. 
It was your sinful nature. Now, I don't like using the term sinful nature because it's not a biblical term. And I say that realizing that a lot of people use a, a particular translation and it says sinful nature in their Bibles, but that's not actually the word that's being used. And so sinful nature gets confusing for people. So I don't like using that term. But in this context here, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. The nature you had when you arrived here on planet Earth was sinful. That's what was crucified with Christ. That's the one that was buried and no longer lives. But Christ now lives in you and I. And so that second half now becomes so critical. The life that I now live today. The life that I live this Sunday morning, I, I live by faith. I live by dependence, by relying upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And it's, it's that truth that it's Christ living in and through us by faith that is really Paul's main point here. In fact, that's really the whole point of the passage that we're going to look at here in chapter 5 is that it's not me and my strength that provides the victory. It's Jesus Christ that provides victory over sin and temptation. In fact, really, we could just probably close in prayer at that point. But we're not. Because there's too much confusion, so we're going to try to explain this in more detail. So <clears throat> let's take a look at verse 17 in a little bit more detail. Verse 17 says, For the flesh sets a desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. I think the, the best way to understand this verse is to identify the various characters that Paul is speaking of. And there's, there's really, there's three characters that we're going to see here. So the first character that Paul refers to is the flesh. So we have a diagram that we're going to kind of create through it this morning here. Um, because I kind of think, you know, as an engineer, if you can't teach it with a diagram, it's probably not worth teaching. So, so I love diagrams. So we have this first word here, the flesh. Now, the Greek word that Paul used here is the word sarks. And, and it literally translates to flesh and bone. So, you know, we all have a, an earth suit. We all have a body. We all have flesh in that sense. And sometimes that's how Paul's referring to it, that he's talking about a body. So in Galatians 2.20, life I live in this body, the life that I live in this flesh suit, this flesh body, I live by faith. And so sometimes that's how Paul's referring to your body. He calls it the flesh or calls it flesh. But other times, many times, and particularly in this passage that we're looking here in chapter 5, Paul is using this term, the flesh, to describe something else. He's not talking about the physical body. Instead, he's talking about something that is, is present in us. So he's, he's referring to, in other passages in Romans 7, in particular, what he's called indwelling sin. So let's take a look at Romans 7. Verses 20 and 21, Paul writes here that, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Well, this is from that famous passage where Paul says, I'm not doing what I want to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate and the very thing I, I want to do, I'm not doing. He's just, just struggling here. And then he came to this great conclusion that he says, there's something else present. There's something present in my body. Later on in verse 23, he's going to talk about it in his mortal body. So in my physical body, there's something present, this thing called sin. 
Now, what's interesting is when you and I, when we think of sin, we typically think of sin as as an action word, right? As a verb. We think of things like lying. We think of things like cheating. We think of things like stealing and driving slow in the fast lane, right? We think of those sinful things. And typically, often that's the case. But that's not what Paul's referring to here when he talks about sin. Instead, the word sin in Romans 7 is a noun. Now, what's a noun? A person, place, or thing. They've actually added a fourth one or an idea, right? Since we've graduated, they've added another one, right? So, so it's a person, place, or thing opposed to a verb, which is an action word. So what's interesting here, Paul, again, he's not talking about the verb sin. He's talking about the noun sin. Now, sin's not a person. It's not a place. I think it's more than just an idea. So that leaves us with the thing. Right? The all-encompassing catch-all, right? It's a thing. It's something that's in my body. And that's what Paul's referring to here. He's, he's talking about this thing called sin in his body. But what's interesting is he says, it's not him. It's no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. And, and so this term, the sin or the flesh, they're kind of synonymous here. What we really want you to see is that the flesh is not you. It's, it's present in you, but it's not your nature. It's not who you are. And really, in many ways, it's best to think of it as a foreign entity that's present in you. Maybe a way to think of that is sort of like a sliver, right? If you get like a sliver in your, in your hand, maybe you ran it across the, the wood the wrong way, so you got a sliver in your hand. Is that piece of wood, is it you? No, but it's in you and it's causing you problems, in, in, in many ways, that's what sin is. That's what the flesh is. It's this foreign entity that's in you and I. It's present in our bodies, but it's not who you are. And I think that's why Paul calls it the flesh, because it's in the flesh. It's in the body. Is that making sense? Now, some people have commented that it's almost like Paul's personified the flesh here. Because he's talking about, you know, the flesh's desires and what it's doing. And, and in chapter 7 of Romans, he's talking about how sin deceived him and, and, and killed him and so forth. And so it's almost like he's given it a personality. And, and we do this all the time in, in books and movies and so forth, right? Where we, we take a character and that character represents something else. For example, we don't talk about nature. We talk about mother nature, Right? Because his character, Mother Nature, represents nature as a whole, but there's no such real character as Mother Nature. Oh, you all agreed? I ruined Santa Claus for someone a few weeks ago. Now I'm ruining Mother Nature for some of you. But, but that's essentially what he's done. He's, he's given sin or the flesh this, this persona, I think, to help us to, to relate to it, to identify it. But Paul wasn't the first person to do that. God was. In Genesis chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7, God here, he's speaking to Cain. You remember Cain and Abel? And, and Cain was the first murderer. He killed his brother Abel. Well, before all that happened, God comes and he speaks to Cain. And he says this to Cain. He says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why are you so downcast? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Again, notice how God speaks about sin. It's this, this entity of some sort, this thing called sin. And he says it's crouching at the door 
It's lying in wait. And its desire is for you. What is its desire to do? Its desire is to control you, to manipulate you, to, to run the show. And so that's what this flesh is, this thing called indwelling sin or the flesh. It's in our bodies. It's not you. It's not your nature, but it is in there and it's trying to control you and I, as we're going to see in more detail in a bit. Now, we need to understand the flesh is not alone, that the flesh has other aspects to it or other friends which may be identified as. And those would be the Satan and the world. Now, just so we're clear, the flesh is not Satan. And, and, and neither is the flesh the world. But together, the flesh, Satan, and the world, they sort of make up an unholy trinity where they're, they have plans for you and I. They are waging war with you and I, and we're in this battle against them. Now, before we understand how that battle takes place, we want to take a little bit more look at the other characters in this passage. And we're going to look at the next one, which is the spirit, right? The flesh wars against the spirit, now, who's the Spirit? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God, the one, one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. But wherever you have one, you've got them all. That's really important to understand, right? If the Holy Spirit lives in you, who else lives in you? Jesus, and who else? The Father, right? All three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, reside in you and I because we are the temple of God. And so you're a crowded house, amen? Right, so we've got... Holy Spirit, we've got Jesus, we've got God the Father, and they're all present on our diagram here, right? And then finally, the third character is you and I, right? The flesh wars against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, that you may not do what you please. Now, just so we're clear, are you the Holy Spirit? No. Sometimes we think we are, or at the very least, sometimes we think we're the assistant Holy Spirit, but the reality is you're not the Holy Spirit. Amen? We can accept that one. Good. But are you the flesh? No. Neither are you the flesh. You and I are a third distinct character in this verse. And again, that's really important to understand. It's flesh is not you. It's not your nature. It's not the old man or the old self. Because that old man, that old self was crucified with Christ. The flesh is something else. The flesh used to dominate and control the old man, but it's something else. Remember the splinter illustration. So you and I, we're this third and unique character in the verse. Now what we want to understand is how do these characters interact with one another? So how does the flesh interact with you and I? And, and most people will say, well, he tempts us. And that's absolutely 100% true. But I want to use a slightly different word. Because sometimes you hear that word and you get so used to it, it, it just sort of, you get into these, these uh, uh, trolley tracks of, of thinking about what the flesh is doing and we kind of ignore what's really happening. So I want to change the word up a little bit because I think it's got the same meaning. It's not just that the flesh is trying to tempt you and I, he's trying to lure or bait you and I. Now, when you think of bait or lure, what, do you, what often comes to mind first? Fishing. Right. I'm not much of a, of a fisherman. Greg loves to fish. Right. I'm not much of a fisherman, but I, I know enough of the basics of how it works, that basically what you do is you take some kind of a bait, something that would appeal to the fish, a worm, maybe another fish, something sparkly. I don't know. Right. And so you take this thing and you, you put the bait on a hook and then you throw the hook or the lure into the water. 
And what happens now is that fish is swimming along and he sees that worm dangling on the hook. And what is he thinking? Food, right? Fish have a really small world perspective. It's just food, 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 right? Kind of like most, most guys. And so the fish, you know, sees that worm and he's all excited and he immediately goes swimming for it because he thinks that is life to him. That what he's looking for will be found if he eats that worm. And so he goes and he chomps down that worm. And then what does he discover? I didn't get the life I was looking for. In fact, now I'm hooked. Now I got death instead. And that fisherman then will reel him in. That wicked, wicked fisherman. Right? That's essentially the premise of how fishing works. But the same is true how the flesh works. That what it's doing is it is throwing out a piece of bait is throwing a lure out there. And the bait or the lure isn't so much go and lie and cheat and drive slow in the fast lane. Instead, what it's trying to say is, here's how you can find life. Here's how you can find what you're looking for, what you are, what you are desperate for. And so how it does that is it starts throwing thoughts into our minds. You see, you have to understand, not all thoughts are your thoughts. Have you, have you recognized that truth yet? That like right now, I am putting thoughts into your mind. And hopefully you're thinking about those thoughts, but those thoughts are initiated by me. And so I'm putting thoughts into your mind. When you're watching TV and a commercial comes on, they're trying to put thoughts into your mind. That's how, that's how marketing and merchandising works, is they're trying to drop these thoughts into your mind. So have you ever noticed how many times at right around five o'clock, all of a sudden you see a lot of the keg commercials up? Not by accident. And you're sitting there, it's like six o'clock. I'm like, I'm hungry. Honey, what if we went to the keg? Where did that idea come from? I don't know, but I think it's a great idea because of the advertising. That's how it's working, right? And so not all thoughts are your thoughts. Well, the flesh is also putting thoughts into your mind. Except it doesn't want to be recognized as the flesh. Think of it this way. If Satan showed up wearing a red suit, horns, pitchfork in his hand, he says, listen, why don't you get loaded tonight? What would you say? No, I'm not interested. You would quickly ignore Satan. But, but if it were to show up and pretend to be you, then you're more likely to accept it as your thought. And so that's what the flesh is doing is dropping these thoughts into your mind using personal pronouns. I, me, myself. And it's trying to talk like you. It's using your accent. It uses the words that you would use. But it also knows all about your history, all about your past. It knows all the weak points, all the exact right buttons to push. So if it knows that you struggle in particular areas, that's where it's going to go after If you struggle with not being enough or being too much, that's what it's going to talk to you about. If you struggle that you don't feel like you have what it takes, that's what it's going to talk to you about. If you struggle with despair or anxiety or shame, that's what it's going to speak to you about. But it's going to say things like, I'm never going to be good enough. If others only knew this about me, they would never love me. I'm going to be so alone. What's the point? It's just going to be a struggle after struggle after struggle after struggle. Can you recognize any of those thoughts in your mind? Where are those thoughts coming from? They're not coming from Jesus. They're not coming from you. 
They're coming from that unholy trinity in some way, most likely coming from the flesh. And what it's doing is it's stirring up those needs. It's stirring up that need to be loved, that need to be accepted, that need to be approved or have significance and value. And because I have that need being stirred up inside of me, I'm like, I'm, I'm dying of thirst. I, I got to go somewhere now. And it's at that moment where the flesh says, here's what we can do. Here's, here's how you can now satisfy that desire. Feeling unloved? Well, let's go online. And let's start chatting with these people over online. And, and I know it's wrong, but, but they really appreciate you more than your spouse does. And so just, just start talking to them. Or maybe go online and take a look at some, some videos and some movies and pictures and so forth that will stimulate you and just sort of distract you from what's going on and make you feel better. And so you start going online and looking at pornography. Or maybe it's, maybe it's thoughts about how dare that person treats me this way. It's not right. And I need to, to have this respect. And so anger becomes the way. I'm going to put them in their place. I'm going to let them know how they're treating me. And so we use anger. And so what's happened is, is because he stirred up this need and then the flesh offers his solution to it, it just seems so right and natural. And we run to that as an option. And what ends up happening is we start carrying out the deeds of the flesh. Now look at the language that Paul uses because he, he explains that going on in chapter 5 and verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. And he explains this long list of things. And really what those, those lists could be kind of uh, grouped into three categories. There's either sexual sins, there's lifestyle sins, or there's relational sins. And those sins, again, they're all attempts to find life on our own terms. That's really what it is. The, the flesh is trying to deal with your shame, deal with your despair, deal with your anxiety, deal with your worthlessness, deal with the rejection, but it just doesn't deal with it very well. So we're swimming along like that fish and we think, oh, if I use anger, if I use sex or if I use uh, control or if I, you know, divide, whatever it is, if I just did that, everything will be OK. And I swim along and I bite down on that life to me. But it's too late. And instead of experiencing life, I experience death. Because as Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin, the wages of sin is of the flesh is death. Not death, separation from God, but misery, emptiness, despair. And so we, we bite down and we, we chomp down on that. And instead of experiencing what we're looking for, we're just miserable. And that's all the flesh is trying to do. Just keep you and I from Jesus in some way. And sometimes it's ugly looking flesh, but sometimes it's great looking flesh. Think about the Pharisees. They had the most moralistic, upright flesh. The Judaizers had great looking upright flesh, but they were trying to distract people from Jesus. And so that's what the flesh is trying to do. Well, what about the Holy Spirit then? How do we, how do we understand how the Holy Spirit operates? Well, the difference is whereas the, the flesh ultimately is trying to control you and I, the Holy Spirit's not. In Galatians 5.1, he said it is for freedom that Christ set you free. That was God's agenda. I mean, think about it. He set you free simply so you would be free. It wasn't, I set you free so you can now serve me. 
It wasn't, I set you free so you can now behave a certain way. It was, I just set you free to be free. You know, to be honest, I kind of wish it wasn't that way. Sometimes I wish he would just control me, make life a whole lot easier. I'd screw up a whole lot less. But he doesn't. That's not his desire. That's not his heart. It's not how he works. Instead, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to lead you and I, and he does it with an invitation. Think about how many times in Scripture Jesus, he didn't command the people to come follow him. He invited them. Come follow me. When he met with those disciples, he invited them to be along with the journey. He didn't command them to come. In John chapter 7, he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. And so what the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is trying to do is he's inviting you and I saying that need you feel is real. That need to be loved, that need to have significance and worth and value, that need to overcome that shame and that anxiety and that despair. That's a real need. He's not denying it. That's like saying to a thirsty guy, just tell yourself you're not thirsty. And if you tell yourself you're not thirsty long enough, everything will be okay. And you deny your thirst, you deny your thirst, and then what? Either you die or you'll drink toilet water. And that's exactly what the flesh is counting on. That you will just deny that need over and over and over again until you reach that point where you're so desperate, you will do, you will take whatever the flesh offers. And now you're drinking out of the toilet like a dog. So don't deny the need. That's, that's foolish. So what do we do instead? I recognize that need, but Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you want to satisfy that need for me, in me. So that need to be loved, that need to be accepted, that need for value and worth is real and legitimate. And he says, it's right here. If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me, Jesus says. And so we run to Jesus and we experience that contentment, that satisfaction that we're desperately searching for. And what ends up happening is that life of Jesus overflows and is expressed through us. And so later on in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it goes on to talk about the, the fruit of the spirits. And, and we cannot overstate this enough. It's not the fruit of the Christian. It's not what you and I produce on our own. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's what the spirit is creating in and through you and I. And so we run to Jesus and we experience that fulfillment and that rest and that trust in the life of Jesus. And now he begins to be expressed through us. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness and so forth. Really what we see is the character of Jesus. And that's what Galatians 2.20 was saying, right? It's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And so this world, instead of experiencing the flesh through me, it begins to experience Christ through me. Well, what about me now? What do I do? Well, to, to, I think to understand this, we have to kind of go back to understanding what is our desire, right? Verse 17 talked about how um, the flesh and spirit are at war so that you may not do the things that you please. Well, what is it that I desire? What is it that I please? Often that verse has been looked at, well, that pleases those sinful things, 
And the Holy Spirit is preventing me from doing the sinful things that I want to do. Well, if that were the case, then you would have a sinful nature because that's what you want to do. But we've already learned that the sinful nature, that sinful old man was crucified with Christ. He's dead and he's gone and the flesh is not you. So what is our desire? Well, let's do a little bit of word study on this one. So we need to look at verses 16 and eight, uh, sorry, 16 and 17 here. Paul says, but I, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What's interesting about this word desire is it's different than the word he uses later for the things that you please at the end of verse 17. The word here in uh, verse 16 for desire, if I can say this right, is epithumia, epithumia. I've been working on that all morning and I still blew it. But then again, I don't say English words properly. So why would I expect to say Greek words properly, right? So epithumia the, the word there is translated as desire. That's appropriate. But it's often, not always, but often in the Greek, in the New Testament, used to speak about something in the negative. So, for example, another word for desire would be lust. But if I say the word lust, you typically would immediately go to thinking desire in a sinful manner. Right? Lusting of a man after a woman in an unhealthy way sort of thing. So lust is one of those words that has a negative connotation attached to it. Well, that's what this epithumia word is. It has a negative connotation attached to it. And so what, what Paul's writing to us is that the desires, the epithumia of the flesh is sinful and bad and rotten. Would we all agree? The flesh is not out for your good. The flesh is out to kill you. But later on in verse 17, where Paul uses talking about what you and I please, he uses a whole different Greek word. He uses the word thelo. And so this word thelo is also this idea of want and desire. And it could have been translated things that you desire, but it's a different kind of desire altogether. It's an innocent desire. It's a good desire. So here's what Paul's saying is that there is this titanic battle between flesh and spirit going at each other. They're fighting for you. But the flesh, it's trying to block what you want to do. Well, what do I want to do? I don't want to sin. In fact, you as a new covenant believer, you never want to sin. You're a holy, righteous new creation in Christ. 100% loved, blameless, pure. That is your one and only nature. So pure and holy, you're actually one with Jesus. Think about that. If you were sinful, could you be one with Jesus? Not possible. So you as a Christian, you never want to sin. Now you might say, well, you don't know me. If you knew me, you would think differently. No, I wouldn't. Think about it. After you sin, are you proud of yourself? Like, do you go on Facebook and Twitter and say, hey, gang, guess what I just did? I just tore a strip off of someone for no reason and yelled and screamed at them. I'm so proud of myself. Are you, are you happy about that? No, why not? You're feeling guilty. You're feeling miserable. Why? Because you're not doing the thing you want to do. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 7? My desires, your desires are to love God. Your desires are to live right. 
That is our only desire. But we have something called the flesh that is leading us away from that desire. We have something called the flesh that is getting in the way of all this. And it's not my flesh, it's the flesh. I hear a lot of times Christians talk about my flesh, my flesh. And I don't like that term because, A, it's not biblical. Paul never talked about the flesh as being my flesh. He always called it the flesh. And the reason I don't like it is because the moment we call it my flesh, we're taking ownership of it. It's now part of me. Now, it's unique to you in the sense that it knows how to go after you. It knows all your weaknesses and so forth. For example, I've never struggled with alcohol. For whatever reason, I don't like it. I, I kind of think it's because I'm cheap and alcohol is expensive. Maybe that's the reason. But, but I've never really struggled with alcohol. So if the flesh came to me and said, let's get loaded. Let's get really just, you know, drunk. And that will deal with all our problems. I think, man, that's dumb. That's stupid. I'll wake up with a headache and I'll be poor. I don't want to do that. So I have no problem saying no to alcohol. But if it came to me and says, you know what? Let's grab a bag of chips, a can of Coke and go watch a movie and just check out, just, just escape from this world, I'm hooked. I'll grab two bags of chips because I'll probably need them both because that is what appeals to me. So in that sense, the flesh knows me and, and so it's unique in how it uh, approaches me. For other people, alcohol is the issue. One's not better than the other. We all have our own unique things that we're attracted to. Sort of like that fisherman knows that this kind of bait attack attracts a, a trout. This one attacks a, lar- a largemouth bass and another one a- a- attracts a pike. Goldfish is the only fourth fish I know. After that, I'm done, right? So, so he, they know that different kinds of bait attract different kinds of fish. And so the flesh understands that about you. But the flesh is not you. It's not who you are. It's in you and it's waging war against you, but it's not who you are. So what is, what is to be our response? Well, understand the battle. Where's the battle taking place? I think we have this verse up here. Oh, we don't have the verse. Anyways, the, the battles going on is the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Notice the battle's not between you and the flesh. Because if the battle's between you and the flesh, then it's my job to overcome it and I can't. Every time I've tried, I failed. But the battles between the flesh and the spirit, meaning my part in all that is to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, you need to overcome this for me because I can't. And so that's what he's going to do. And that's, that's really what we've been instructed to do is to turn to him instead. So in passages like Romans 6, verses 11 to 13, Paul says to realize, count this as a fact that you died with Christ, that you're dead to the sin, you're dead to the flesh, but you're now alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can find everything you need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let the flesh, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you would obey its desires. Not yours, its It's sinful desires. Don't present yourself to sin and be this instrument of unrighteousness, carrying out the deeds of the flesh. Instead, present yourself to God, alive from the dead, as brand new creations, as holy and righteous. Say, God, here I am. You love me and I love you and you're living in me. What do you want to do in me right now? And the life of Jesus comes out. And so that's where the battle is. That battle to trust Jesus to overcome the flesh for, for you. 
It's not for you. And that's really what Paul is trying to get across. So we go back to that initial passage that we looked at. Look what he's saying here, kind of summarizing it all up. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The simple command is not, it's not don't walk after the flesh. The command is walk after the spirit. Because as long as you're trusting in the spirit, what are you not trusting in? You're not trusting in the flesh. Sort of like if you have two cars in your driveway, car A and car B, as long as you're driving car A, you're not driving car B. Same is true. Trust the spirit. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets a desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Remember the context with the Judaizers saying, you need the law, you need the rules, the do's and the don'ts. Don't go here. Don't go there. Don't watch this. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. Do this. Don't do that. All these lists of rules. And Paul says, that is useless. That's basically, it doesn't satisfy the hunger or the thirst. It's just denying it. Instead, you've got Jesus. So it's not your willpower, it's not your strength that overcomes the flesh, it's Christ in you that overcomes the flesh. He's got a perfect record against the flesh. Every time Jesus has battled the flesh, he's won. I too have a perfect record with the flesh. Every time I've battled the flesh, I've lost. So who do I want to trust? I want to trust the Spirit. Now, I wish we had more time, but we don't. So we're going to cover this probably another time. But there's some other things to kind of help us with this. And it, it's not a battle. See, the battle isn't against you in the flesh. The battle is, will you trust Jesus? That's not a battle. You have to fight alone. I really want to stress that. We, we sometimes think it's our own battle to fight. And that's when we get into trouble. But you don't have to fight it alone. God has gifted to you and I this larger community called the church. Other people that can come alongside you and, and encourage you and support you. And so maybe what that means is, is when that battle comes, you know, when that temptation comes to, to get drunk or to, to get angry or, or to, to look at pornography or to, to go online and chat with someone you're not supposed to be or whatever it is, when that temptation comes, one of the best things you can do as John Lynch takes to call it, go tell on yourself. Go find a trusted brother or sister in the Lord and say, listen, this is what I'm struggling with. And often we're like, I'm too embarrassed to share that because I'd be sharing my temptation and, and, and I don't want them to know that I struggle in that area because they'll look down on me. Where do you think that thought came from? Do you think that came from Jesus? Or that th thought come from the flesh? That thought came from the flesh. But here's the other thing. What do you have to be embarrassed of with the temptation? Because where did the temptation come from? It didn't come from you. In fact, when you're telling on yourself, you're actually declaring to this other person, this is who I am. I am righteous and I am holy and I am of a good, pure nature. Because I don't want to do this thing. But I'm struggling. Will you help me? And that other person now can talk to you, can encourage you, 
Because sometimes just getting it out of your head and saying it out loud to someone else, you realize how awful of an idea that would be and how that wouldn't solve my problems. It would actually make more problems and that Jesus has the answer. And so just saying it out loud helps. But maybe that other person then can encourage you, can come alongside you and can pray for you. And so we can now use a, a safe community of grace, a safe community of people to love and support us. Or maybe, and this is, it might even be even riskier, you trust other people when they see you swimming towards the bait. When they start to see that anger begin to grow. They start to see that shame running through your mind as you begin to have that downcast. They begin to see that despair and that anxiety and that, and that, uh, that hopelessness begin to surface. And trust someone else to come alongside you and call you on it. And, and it's scary sometimes because there's an offense to that. If you have that anger beginning to grow and they recognize that and they say, I, I think you're getting out of hand here. What does that typically do with anger? I'm not angry. How dare you say that about me? And the anger only grows. But what if you could trust that person? Trust that that person actually is looking out for you. Okay, I don't think I'm angry, but for your sake, I'll calm down a bit. We'll let things settle. And I'll begin to think clear. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for risking by loving me. And that other person can say, thank you for letting me love you. Thank you for receiving what God wants to do for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord Jesus, that this battle is not one that we fight alone. It's not our battle to fight. It's yours. All you're asking from us is to trust you, to rely on your strength and your power for you to overcome that which we cannot in our own. And thereby allowing us to do what we want to do, what we desire most to do, to live upright lives, to love people, and most importantly, to love you. Father, I pray that, first off, you would, you would let us know that there is a safe community around us. And if we don't feel that, that we would find that. That we would find your children, other brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we can be honest with them. I mean, real gut level honest. Where they can know the worst about us or what we perceive to be the worst about us, but love us all the still. And that we would be willing to trust ourselves with them and them with us. Because when that happens, it isn't about sinning less. When that happens, you're glorified and your life is expressed to this world, a world that is in desperate need for you. In your name we pray. Amen.